welcome to episode 22 of the Swamp Flicks Podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm Cece Chapman. We are again recording in 7th Ward, New Orleans, recovering from the 2016 roundups. And I swear this will be the end of counting down the best films we saw last year. We're doing a lot of loose ends today, a little tidying up. And we've still been watching movies from last year that finally reached the city from other parts of the country, films that opened in New York and Los Angeles that we may have considered for our best of 2016 list that may have just slowly made their way down to New Orleans. What have you liked that we've seen recently? I really like 20th Century Women. Uh, It's a Mike Mills movie. Uh, It stars Annette Bening uh, as a woman who had her son at the age of 40 uh, and is raising him alone in a large rundown house that she's slowly restoring with the help of one of her tenants who lives in the house with her. Um, Supporting cast is really great. Greta Gerwig's in it. Uh, Billy Crudup. Billy Crudup. Elle Fanning. Elle Fanning. Semi-autobiographical. It's kind of about his mom. Some of the uh, biographical points have been changed, obviously, to make it a better fictional story. I have to say, this might have been my number one movie of last year if I had seen it in time. I still think The Neon Demon is a great movie. I love it. Also stars Elle Fanning. Yeah, maybe I'm just an Elle Fanning fan. But there's something really transformative about this movie. Honestly reminded me of the things I heard about Boyhood and Tree of Life that I just didn't personally get. Uh, this was the like transcendent movie that brought me outside of my own head into like this like wide scope of the universe. And that's not what I expected when I bought a ticket. No, it seemed like it would just be like kind of this warm, you know, character drama with funny bits and, you know, good characterization, but then we got something a lot bigger than that. Uh, not only is the acting just truly excellent, the young man who plays the son is amazing. We get to see him grow as a human being, so there is that boyhood element, and we, we get to see the gears working in his head as he's figuring out how to be a man in the world in the tumultuous time of the 1979. But we also get... Mike Mills uses this really interesting effect that he also used in his uh, previous movie, Beginners, where he just shows us still images of, this is what the universe looked like in 1979, this is what the sun looked like, this is what a couple looks like, and he keeps recontextualizing these images over and over and over throughout the film. Yeah, I like the storytelling style he does where he'll introduce Annette Bening's character or Greta Gerwig or Elle Fanning, he'll tell their entire life story in like a, a paragraph and then kind of double back and fill and color in between those lines. So you sort of get their whole like from birth to death story up front and then there's like context added and uh, all this really interesting detail. And yeah, I just did not expect that kind of abstract... Experimental, I guess you could say. I, the the words that come to mind, it's a little bit of a cliche, but like pure cinema, just like what visuals and sound and just the moving image can do and how that how can that can affect you in a storytelling style that you don't get from like television or like picture books or anything else. Like this is something that only a movie could pull off. Yeah. I mean, it would have been a great story as a graphic novel. It would have been a very good book, although I felt like it probably would have been like kind of a self-centered like book about a young man talking about his mom. But instead, you just you just get something so warm and so lovingly made. And it has this context where it's set in the late 70s, early 80s punk scene, which is a lot of the music we listen to for fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like on the hook. Uh, the, the very first needle drop in the movie, which is a literal needle drop, like someone's playing a record, is my favorite Talking Heads song. So, like, within, like, three minutes, I was, like, eating out of this movie's hands. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and that feeling never left me. Like, it's really hard to, like, fall in love with something immediately and then not 
sort of nitpick at it by the end, but I was totally in love with every frame of this film. No, it was gorgeous. It was it was expertly shot. It yeah, it was just great. Like I don't I don't I don't know what more I could say about it without just repeating myself, but I, I think I agree with Brandon. I think it might have been my number one. Not that I want to knock the fits out of its place because it deservedly needs to be seen by everyone and it is also a great film. I feel like this movie is what the fits director will make next. You like as far as quality, not a tone or style or anything like that, but when we watched Mike Mills' first movie, Beginners, which is also a semi-autobiographical tale, this one's about his dad, who after his mother died in 1999 of lung cancer, spoiler alert, uh, I mean, it's not really much of a spoiler, they tell us that at the beginning, his dad comes out at the age of 75 as gay, and he'd always been gay, and his mom knew he was gay, but they decided to, you know, get married and have a kid, because that's what you did in the 50s. And so this is a story kind of about his childhood, but mostly about like his dad's journey over the five years he had between his wife's death and his own, you know, coming out as a gay man in the world at such an advanced age. And also about, you know, Mike Mills' own like personal life. And like, he learned how to fall in love by watching his father. And it's also an amazing film with a lot of the same stylistic flourishes. And I feel like The Fits is probably more on par with like the quality of beginners. And I'm really excited to see like what this director does next. Yeah, Anna Rose Homer. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm really excited to see what she does next. Yeah. Because if he had such a tremendous gain in the quality of a film, like, Beginners is a good film. And again, it's, it has all the same stylish flourishes where he, like, says, like, this is the sun, and this is what people look like, and this is what food looks like. And then, like, goes back and tells us the story of these people very quickly, and then goes back and, like, shows us scenes with these people. It's a good film, but it's not 20th century women. There's something just, like, not quite right. Yeah, he's still reaching where... He's, he's still working on it. Like, he perfected that film in his second film. And I feel like The Fitz is a great film. But I, I just now I wonder, like, what is what is she going to do in her next film? Like, how much better is it going to be? Like, I mean, lists are kind of arbitrary and kind of silly to, like, say that the year's over. So it is kind of a bummer that we can get to praise 20th Century Women when we were doing that last episode. But, yeah. I mean, it's still a great movie and we still get to hold on to it. Yeah, no. I don't, I don't regret anything. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, we probably would have knocked Fitz out of number one. Yeah, I'm Sorry. kind of on the same page. <laughs> and uh, Silence came out down here finally, and I really liked that as well. I don't know if it would have made my top 10, but it would have been on my like longer, tw- best tw- 20 of the year list. It would list. have made my top 20, probably. Yeah. And that's that's Martin Scorsese's latest, and people are kind of divided on that movie, but I thought it was pretty transcendent as well, and in a um, much darker, grim kind of way, where 20th Century Women was like life-affirming. Silence was like devastating. <laughs> I have to say, in all honesty, I'm not 100% sure I understood the ending, because it is very purposely ambiguous, uh, and also because I did not grow up in Catholicism, I didn't really understand a lot of like the struggles that were going on. <laughs> Sorry. So I feel like you probably have more of a connection to it just because you understood what they were talking about most of the time. Yeah, I, I mean, people read the movie differently based on religious beliefs. I mean, I'm not Catholic anymore, but maybe that context of like growing up, going to Catholic school added to my appreciation of the film. Perhaps. But, you know, like I said, it's really tempting to just leave the year behind now because it's been a full month of like 2016 roundups. Um, we have seen our first two films of the new year. We watched Death Race 2050 on Netflix. This is a reboot or a uh, reimagining of the original Roger Corman-produced 
Paul Bartel directed dystopian racing film. It's a satire on sort of reality television type culture. Uh, it stars Malcolm McDowell as this Trump type dictator who is the CEO of the United Corporations of America. There's this virtual reality goggles that are just cheap swimming goggles. They're literally just swimming goggles. They did nothing else to them. They're just <laughs> pairs of black swimming goggles. And that puts the uh, audience at home in the driving seat with the contestants who get points by running over pedestrians in the street. And also racing. Both. Yeah. But mostly they get the points from pedestrian kills. And that's supposed to be a solution to the country's overpopulation problem. Due to the fact that we can all live to be 200 or older. Well... Death Race 2000 is, I would say, you and I is like one of fa- our favorite like B pictures, um, especially of the Corman brand. Um, I don't think this was that good, but it was really fun. I don't know if the satire was particularly strong, but it really has this goofy production design and this like weirdo energy to it that I really appreciated. I, th- I thought it was a lot of fun. I-, I really liked it. I feel like they kind of went out of their way to address some of the issues with the original. And sometimes it was to its detriment. Like I really liked Frankenstein in the original movie. He mm-hmm. was just this weird, deformed character who had been like taken apart and put back together and everyone assumed he'd look really terrible under the mask. He actually didn't look bad. It was just David Carradine. Yeah, just David Carradine. (laughs) But like in this case, they had to like explain that actually, you know, the mask is just good marketing and he is actually like really handsome. He's from New Zealand. He's like just this gorgeous like beach punk. Manu Bennett, I think is his name. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they also have the female characters talk a lot more into each other and not about men in a literal, the Bechdel bar. Yeah, they, the one scene that clears the Bechdel bar is at a bar called the Bechdel bar where two women share a drink and talk about the state of things. And then like, you know, they have like this like ghetto black character who is this rapper and you know, her, her lyrics are like, kill, kill, blam, blam. Drive, drive. Drive, drive. Kill, kill. Uh, really awful stuff like that. But then she does this, I feel like now kind of cliche thing where like she's like, actually my dad is a history professor and I'm actually extremely well educated. I just know that this is what people expect of me and this is how I make money. Yeah, that wasn't as funny to me as her. Like um, I feel like I've seen that now. Like, and it's still gross. Like, eh. Yeah, her fans running into the street to sacrifice themselves for like their favorite pop star to run them over for points. I thought that was a lot funnier and yeah. a lot more unique than what they did with her character later in the film, for sure. I mean, I still liked her character a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I thought even when she was doing that, like, kind of like that character yeah. that she was playing as like kind of a grotesque a caricature as it was. Like I still thought she was playing it with like a certain amount of humor and yeah. it was funny. And she's dressed like a post apocalypse like rainbow store. Yeah. Like, she's got these cool like studded skull shoulder pads. And... Yeah, like epilots like that are like these like crystal skulls yeah. with like French hanging off of them, like crazy sunglasses and like Yeah. And they had this uh character that was like a Texas Christian who was really uptight. Uh, Who had her own cult. Yeah, she turned her, like, Texas Christian uptight lady persona into this, like, act of terrorism. Uh, It was also, like, a weird sex cult, so I don't know, like, how, like, much, like, good Christianity was in it. (laughs) A lot of, like, judgment of people. Yeah. But, like, also a lot of weird sex stuff. I think that's what they were spoofing was that that stereotype of, like, Texas conservative. But, yeah, they turned into this, like, ugly, she's, like, a terrorist who has her own cult and I don't know. Like a literal terrorist. She like blew up a bunch of fans before the race even started and they had to debate whether or not she'd get the points. Right. And I think the movie's hands were tied behind its back a little bit because it's an obvious 
Besides being a reboot of the original Death Race, it's an obvious um, combination of The Hunger Games and Mad Max Fury Road. And it, like, makes no apologies for that. It's, like, very much on the surface. Like, we are just smashing these two properties together. And, like, the thing where you said about, like, Frankenstein, where they show his face and stuff. Immediately. We had to wait till like, half the movie was over for the other Death Race before we saw Frankenstein. But by doing that, they make him look more like Tom Hardy in Fury yeah. Road. Yeah, and he looks a lot like Tom Hardy. If Tom Hardy were, like, half Maori, like... Yeah. With, like, beautiful dark hair and, like, a lot of stubble. So, you know, not a perfect film, but I really enjoyed oh. it. Um, and I also went to the theater by myself late on a Sunday night, near <clears> empty, <throat> to watch Monster Trucks. So disappointed. <laughs> Which was my first uh, theatrical experience with a 2017 film. I think this movie will live on with titles like Howard the Duck and Mac and Me, Gooby, The Garbage Pail Kids, as just a hideous creature design in this character, Creech. But it's so ugly that it's kind of cute. And you want to adopt him? I saw stills. I saw the trailer. <laughs> uh, that idea never crossed my mind. <laughs> He's this underground sea creature. So this company in North Dakota is fracking for oil. Mm-hmm. And they accidentally release this like subterranean sea creature that lives in these like underwater wells. And they drink oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them sneaks off and it's the baby. And that's Creech. Um, he can't walk because he swims normally, so he has to use the beds and bodies of trucks to walk around as if he were in a wheelchair. Oh, that's, that's kind of sweet, you know. And at first he <laughs> operates them like a Flintstones vehicle, like he uses his tentacles to like sort of putter around, uh, but then eventually he learns how to work the gears of the truck and does all of the ridiculous things like a 10-year-old would want a monster truck to do. He, like, goes up walls, over down the sides of mountains, uh, over smaller trucks, and just crushes everything. And he's just got this hideous, like, goop look where he's just not a solid body. No, he looks, he looks like, like, remember Gak? Yeah. He looks like a, like somebody poured Gak into like a, uh, like a fish tank and gave it teeth. <laughs> like he's just this weird slimy goo with a mouth. But he's got the biggest smile and he's such a, such a charmer. He doesn't have bones. <laughs> so of course he's got a big mouth. He can just keep, he can just keep going. <laughs> this is a ridiculous movie. It was conceived by this guy used to be the president of Paramount. He was watching his kids smash toy trucks together and just decided that he was going to make this monster truck movie. It was like a eureka moment. What if trucks, like what if monster trucks, like really were monsters? <laughs> like what if they were both? Uh, That's it, called Transformers, dude. That's literally like Transformers. Like what if, what if trucks could like walk around like were monsters and like smash things? Like. <laughs> and it took two years for them to get it from that concept to a test screening. At the test screening, children apparently freaked out because the monster design on Creech was so disgusting and gross. They, like, literally scared the kids in the theater. Um, So they spent these expensive months redesigning him and touching up his CGI to make him cuter, and that ballooned the budget up to $125 million. So this movie will never make its money back. No. Also, that that uh, that person who conceived, who came up with the, the the concept, he he is no longer with Paramount. Oh, he's been fired. Yeah. I don't, was he actually the president? Yeah, he was the president of Paramount at the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, he's not the president anymore. <laughs> he was impeached. Well, I, I for one appreciate his vision. I think this is a great camp film. This is what I love about January when all these 
studios just dump these movies they don't know how to market. I think this creature design uh, is going to be great meme fodder over the years. I haven't seen a good uh, looking meme like this since uh, Chewbacca's son in that Star Wars Christmas special oh. I just watched. I think his name's Lumpy? Something like <laughs> Something that. Something like that. Oh. Uh, but yeah, this is going to be great for shit posting. Uh, the Baby Grinch is another good oh, reference. Oh yeah, I, I saw a lot of the Baby Grinch this December. <laughs> right. They actually posted him with Chewbacca's son a lot. Yeah, side by side because they look way too much alike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Creech earns that right. Like Howard the Duck, Ooby, like you said. Uh, I don't think he deserves to be in the same category as Howard the Duck, but I, th- I think I think he'll stick around longer than the movies even remembered for. People will be like, "What is this thing from again?" <laughs> but. We do have a little bit of tidying up as far as 2016 movies goes. We cut out about 15 minutes of our honorable mentions from the last episode because it was already ridiculously long. Um, So I'm just going to sort of shoehorn that into the back half of this episode. And before that, we're going to get to a Movie of the Minute recommendation that we've been waiting to watch for a few years. And all that's coming up to you right Right now. now. The Battle for the Mind of North America will be fought in the video arena, the videodrome. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Therefore, television is reality. And reality is less than television. And now it's time for our regular recommendation segment, Movie of the Minute. This is where we bounce back and forth, making each other watch films we've never seen before. This movie we've owned on Blu-ray for about three years, but we did not have a Blu-ray player until about a month ago. It was my fault. Every year, his dad and stepmom asked me to create an Amazon wish list for our Christmas gifts. And, you know, they don't buy us everything on it. You know, sometimes they just use it as, like, a springboard of ideas to bounce off of. And I put this movie on the list, knowing that Brandon wanted it. And I think maybe, like, less than a week went by between me, like, giving the list to them and me realizing, oh, shit. I think I put the Blu-ray edition, the Blu-ray Criterion edition of this movie on the list instead of the DVD version, because I think the DVD version was sold out and Amazon swapped it over to the Blu-ray version. And so I went through and I didn't want to spoil the surprise for me in case they had bought stuff, so I just deleted it off the list and, like, left it at that. Well, they had already bought it at that point. Mm -hmm. I had it on, like, you know, set to, like, surprise me so they didn't take it off the list from my end so even though i deleted it off the list they'd already bought it and we had to be like oh cool super cool despite the fact that we did not have a blu-ray player well it's 2017 it was about damn time that we got a blu-ray player well we did not have a blu-ray player in 2014 <laughs> so it's it's an obsolete format now even like i mean even the handmaiden right now is not getting an american blu-ray release because they just don't find it profitable, which is insane. Wow. So we're like way behind the times. But I couldn't wow. bear to rid myself of this nice Criterion Blu-ray copy of Videodrome. Uh, it's a 1983 film by David Cronenberg. One of my favorite films of all time. Definitely my favorite Cronenberg film. It's really funny to see this listed as a sci-fi film on Wikipedia, because I feel like that doesn't even touch the weird places this movie goes. Yeah, I don't really see a lot of science in this. <laughs> it's about a television signal that causes hallucinations kind of like the yellow king uh, that that old story by raymond carver this sort of wicked television executive who owns this schlocky cheap cable channel that only shows pornography and hardcore violence 
is seeking new dangerous modes of entertainment to broadcast to attract advertisers. And he stumbles upon this obviously illegal broadcast called Videodrome, which is unscripted, probably real images of people getting tortured and murdered on screen. And he is totally intrigued and turned on by it. Um, and the more he watches it, the more it drives him insane to the point where you cannot tell what is happening in this movie is a hallucination and what is real. Um, the people transmitting the signal start to control his thoughts and assign him to assassinate people so that he can broadcast the signal even further and get even more people to hallucinate under its spell. And the movie just takes these really weird turns where you can't tell where his hallucination stops and where the plot begins. There's these scenes where he has this gun grafted to his hand as if it's part of his body. Uh, he has this sort of vaginal opening on his chest where videotapes can be inserted to reprogram his orders from above and it's hard to tell what of that is real and what is him interpreting what is happening to him uh this is a performance by james woods he plays a total asshole in this movie who gets everything that's coming to him and learns a lesson i guess about how evil his obsessions are with sex and violence and combining the two just for uh cheap pleasures but really, I feel like Cronenberg's working through some sort of inner conflict about his own obsessions with the awful things that can happen to the body through sex and violence. He really likes to dig into the details of how grotesque the human body can be when it's being torn apart or when it's exchanging fluids. Um, and this movie really hinges on some kind of paranoia that's hard to even pinpoint. It's like a deep philosophical psychological horror going on here which is why it's funny to me to reduce it to like sci-fi because i think there's something much weirder going on uh, what did you think of videodrome cc i liked it um uh, i feel like the imagery from it is so familiar just because it has been used in a lot of stuff that i felt like i'd already seen it but i don't think i have it's an uh, iconic film for sure yeah it's really iconic you know it's like you know, I, I probably know most of the major scenes from Gone with the Wind, but I haven't seen that shit. <laughs> Do you feel like you've seen the television mutations in this before? Because that's something that really amazes me. It's these uh, creations by special effects master Rick Baker. Ricky Baker! Ricky Baker! <laughs> Where um, the televisions themselves that he's watching these tapes on start to like pulsate and like turn The screens, in. yeah, the stack on the screen. And then um, kind of reminds me of an effect from The Frighteners, uh, the Peter Jackson film. Um, there's like ghosts in the walls and they, they're able to push outwards. You see it in a couple other horror movies where yeah. somebody's on one side of a white wall and they push out and you can see like this distorted like face or hand pushing out of the wall. <laughs> and the television does that in this. Uh, but the image... Usually people do that effect with a white wall because that's what's easy to do. Rick Baker managed to... Rick Baker. I can't stop. I can't say it. Yeah, Hunt for the Wilder People has really ruined our Rick Baker. <laughs> I can't I can't say Rick Baker anymore. I just want to say Ricky Baker. Yeah. Um, but instead of just doing something simple like a plain white wall, he manages to have the television image, the moving television image, projected on this as it's as it's moving. Um, and the television becomes a body at several parts. Like, uh, if someone's shot in the chest... The TV will have this like torso with a bleeding bullet wound in it to like reflect what's happened to the body. And the movie starts to blur biology and television, so where the TV is just an extension of who we are as a human being. I feel like that's something he does in a lot of his films. Like he mixes machinery, industrial objects with with uh, biology with like a biological human body. Uh, 
you haven't seen it yet, uh, so we may touch on it for a movie of the month in the future, but Brandon hasn't seen Existence by David Cronenberg, yeah. uh, and there's some really grotesque guns that like have like bones and teeth, and <laughs> you plug into a video game in this one. Um, so again, you have this like physical hardware mixed with these biological elements in Dead Ringers. The gynecological tools for monstrous women uh, have kind of that same element. They are a little more on the industrial side, but they're these very like grotesque-looking pieces of metal. Um, those are a beautiful like art project. Yeah, no, those those he did have them in an art gallery at one point. People were like, "Oh, these are yeah gynecological tools for a monstrous woman." Yes, this is obviously an art project. <laughs> yeah. Let's put them in a gallery. He's like, "No, really, I want to use these on a woman." <laughs> And the Ooh. same thing with those, that just some of the images in this are just instantly horrifying, even like outside of context. If you just seen like clips from this without watching the movie, he really does tap into some sort of like surreal fear that I can't even like pinpoint. Yeah, I feel like I've seen this discussion recently about art of the uncanny. Yeah. And it's just something that like, there's a sculpture that's in, I think it's in London, and it looks like a normal bronze sculpture of a woman. And she's crouching on her knees with her arms at her sides, like against the floor. Except it's not on the floor, it's sideways on a wall. And the sculpture's completely in bronze and her neck's turned to the side. So as you see her, you approach her from behind and it just looks like normal bronze. When you get around to the other side, you can see her head twisted towards you and her eyes are white human, like normal human eyes with irises and pupils and color, but the rest of the whole thing's bronze. And it's, you know, teeth like Barton Erectus. It's just, it's terrifying. And you don't have to really look at that sculpture for long. Like, even if you see it from behind, even before you get the full context of a sculpture, it's just instantly terrifying. Because it's it's mounted incorrectly, like it's on the wall. It shouldn't be on the wall on its side. It should be on the floor. Because humans can't sit sideways on walls. Like, there's just so many things that go into it that make it, like, it just instantly, like, ugh. Yeah, I, th- I think this movie might do some, like, rug pulls like that, where something horrific will happen, but then you start to get a hold on that thing. Like, you start to get used to the vaginal opening that the beta tapes go into, and then a scene or two later, the entire reality of the movie will shift, where, like, something you've gotten used to is even, like, worse or weirder than you thought. That surprise, where you're kind of off guard the whole time, is really unnerving. And I've seen this movie several times, and I just... He just keeps going, he's, like, in a hallucination, and then it's like, oh, but this is all a dream, I've woken up. And then it's like, no, you're just deeper in the hallucination, and now you're deeper in the hallucination, now you're deeper. Which is something, again, I, I think we should watch Existence, because that is, like, a big part of Existence, is, like, you keep going deeper and deeper into it. Every time, like, you unplug and are out of it, you realize that, no, you were in it all along, and, like, I don't know, it just, it's, it's a real mindfuck. <laughs> I really miss this era of Cronenberg. Like, I just saw The Fly for the first time last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was... A- one of the last ones, Existence, obviously, as well, that I just hadn't caught up with. But this was really just, like, a special time for, like, somebody who just really creeps me out in this really genuine way. Dude, I mean, Existence was the last. That was, like, 1999 or something like that. I think that was his last of, the, like, the creature feature body horror movies. Yeah, he moved um, on to a couple crime thrillers after that. Now he does these sort of philosophical... I don't think Existence is, like, 
I don't think it was well regarded when it was made. Yeah. I think it was critically panned, and it is very long. And I was much younger when I watched it. I didn't love it because mm-hmm. it was so ridiculously long. Like I think the effects are really cool and gruesome, but I don't know if like as a movie it's actually like that good. Again, I would need to rewatch it because I, I haven't seen it since I was like fourteen. But I think maybe that had something to do with it. Maybe he he kept telling the same stories over and over. Yeah, He's like, maybe ah, he got this bored is just it. Videodrome, but with video games instead of television. Yeah. yeah, maybe he got bored with it. I, th- I think early 2000s he did um, Eastern Promises and History of Violence, and that seemed like a very sharp turn from this kind of body horror stuff. Which, if you say the words body horror, I think Cronenberg's like one of the first names that'll come to mind, if not the very first. But I think this movie's even more special than something like The Fly, which is a very like strict body horror where you just watch someone transform. Yeah, the metamorphosis. This deals with those elements and it makes the body foreign in this really disorienting way but there's just so much more going on than that it's a really weird well, also I, I thought it was a pretty straight transformation film <laughs> so it's not just him transforming because i kind of thought that's what a, a good uh, bit of it i feel like it's digging into perception and reality and mm. the way that we process images and they become part of us uh, in a physical way, like making the intangible tangible and a part of your body. That's something like really weird and not even something made literal in this film. It's not something that's really ever explained. He's he's told that he has a tumor and that's what's causing these hallucinations. But what we see on screen is much stranger than that. So I, I don't really see it as like a point A to point B. Like he yeah, becomes I mean, a creature. Yeah, it's, it's not just a transformation. Reality slides. Reality is very slippery in this. Where's the fly? Okay, yeah, like, he he becomes Brundlefly, he gets really gross, he becomes, like, a complete fly man, <laughs> a very little man, and, you know, like... But we never doubt that this is set in our reality. It's set in our reality and something fantastic happens. Not fantastic good, but, like, fantastic as in, like, a fantasy. But it is still our reality. Like, yeah. nobody else has the ability to... Or the equipment or the, the know-how to become the fly. Only him. Right. And in the in the fly as well, you kind of have some empathy for the character. Like he becomes a monster, but at first he's kind of like a nice guy. Yeah, I mean, at first he's he's still Jeff Goldblum, so I mean. But James Wood's character in Videodrome is a total asshole. And he tries to explain it away for economic reasons. It's like, oh, well, why does your cable channel only show pornography and hardcore violence? And he's like, well. Nobody's heard of us, and it's the only way to get people's attention. And, you know, I'm just giving the people what they want, and so there's no reason to ever show anything else. So there. It's like, ah! <laughs> there are other channels that have other things on them. Like, you could do that. Not that I'm saying he should have, but I'm just saying, like, just own it if you're going to show pornography and violence. Just be like, yeah, no, this is just uh, what I thought was cool. So, yeah. I think it's like a perfect Reagan-era cad. Like, yeah. he's just a total ass. He insists that he's being an asshole for economic reasons, but really it's because he's an asshole. <laughs> and uh, right after his first hallucinations, he meets two very interesting characters. Uh, one is a love interest played by Deborah Harry. A brunette Deborah Harry. Ooh. She's blondie no more. <laughs> and the other is a character that only appears on televisions on television named Brian Oblivion, who is sort of like his window into what Videodrome is doing to his brain. He's, he's, a, he's a professor who believes in the mind-altering properties of the cathode ray. <laughs> yeah, and he starts these, like, ca- cathode ray churches. Yeah, it's, it's like a Salvation Army-type missionary where the homeless can go and they can, they can watch television and that will help rehabilitate them and integrate them into society if they can just watch what people are doing, normal 
people are doing on the television and they can follow in their footsteps because the cathode ray changes you. And that's one of the first steps of the hallucination. We're like, not exactly sure what is these people and what is Videodrome and how they're being used to manipulate him and who's even behind it all and for what purpose. We know that they want to spread the hallucinations further, but to what end? Yeah, it's just going to like kill people. Like People die after they're exposed to Videodrome or something awful happens to them, we assume they die. But... It's and also they need victims. Like, not everyone... Some people watch Videodrome. Some people are in Videodrome. Why make everyone watch it? You're just going to run out of people to, you know, torture and kill in Videodrome. Well, I think the scary thing is that it's not for profit. It's for some no. sort of, like, philosophical yeah, purpose. Yeah, political. Yeah. They're doing, it, they're doing it as a political act. He did the same thing in his movie Shivers, which was his first film. It's about this, like, parasite that's developed. Uh, it, it's at first developed to replace organs instead of, like, organ transplants. But the scientists who are working on it kind of go rogue, and they want to develop this parasite to bring back man to his animal instincts and basically turn the world into this gross, like, orgiastic violence uh, without any moral code. And I feel like there's something to that in Videodrome as well. Like, they're some sort of, like, sociopolitical anarchists that want to, like, return humanity back to this, like, base... Well, yeah, we can't destroy anything, you know, not at a great level because we can't build at anything at a great level. So we can't we can't build cathedrals, but we also can't burn down the Amazon rainforest. <laughs> so, All we can do is fuck. So there's and some yeah. poetry to the him being the prime target because he is like the worst aspect of that like glib, nothing matters, I'm just going to sell sex and violence uh, for my own profit. But he is not like a sexual or a violent person per se. Uh, no, not until he sees Videodrome for the first time. Yeah, and it starts pulling him in uh, to where he's having sex and the woman he's with wants to sort of play with BDSM and he starts to enjoy it and then he becomes like a complicit part of that whole subhuman thing that the movie does to your brain. Yeah, because yeah, they do, they do kind of imply that he does not date. He only goes to work. <laughs> I feel like, other than occasionally watching some of his own, like, porn and violence, mostly even though he justifies, he's like, no, I'm just looking for new shows to add. Doesn't seem like he really gets that much pleasure out of it, uh, until Videodrome. He seems pretty bored about most of what he plays on his channel. Yeah. And I will say, just one more thing, that, that reference to the Yellow King earlier, like, that's what scares me most about this movie, is when I'm watching it, I feel like the movie's changing me, the way that the character's transforming. <laughs> oh no. It's like a really unnerving feeling, where I'm like, I shouldn't be watching this. Like, it's a scary feeling every time I see it. And it never becomes normalized for me. I didn't get that with this, but I have gotten it with books before. But I also, I, I'm, I'm a reader, so for me, books are a good bit more stimulating than, than the visual element, mm -hmm. just because I have a very active imagination. Uh, like the book um, House of Leaves, that book really scared me. Uh, I read it, and I think I might have gotten a fever, or I just took a nap too late in the day and got a fever from that, because I always get too hot when I, when I sleep during the day, and... Whew, that book really scared me. Had a lot of really extremely accurate, vivid nightmares of the book that like were the book's plot, which I have not done with a book before. Uh, but yeah, like I, th I feel like some things just affect us weird. Yeah. Video Doom didn't affect me that way, but I have had that, that particular <laughs> feeling before that, that this book is changing me, yeah, or this, I, this media is changing me. I get a very specific kind of panic when I watch this movie, and it's something pleasurable in a way, but it's also something like really scary to me that I, I really like returning to it. And I'm glad that 
It doesn't sound like you liked it quite as much as I do. I mean, I think it's okay. Again, I just, I feel like I've seen all those images before. Like, it didn't feel shocking to me. Like, yeah. I, I'm not afraid of it like you are. I don't know. <laughs> uh, it was good. Yeah. I liked it. Well, I don't know if it's currently available in any kind of streaming capacity, but I'm sure a lot of people have already seen it. It's definitely, I would recommend it as my favorite Cronenberg film. Do you have a favorite Cronenberg? Dead Ringers. Oh, Dead Ringers is a good one. Crash? Have you seen Crash? I've never seen Crash. We should do that one sometime, too. Okay. All right. Well, look forward to Crash and Existence sometime in the distant future. Love is messy. It's illogical, it's wasteful, and it's messy. And it leaves these loose threads that go out all over the place. But you, you like things nice and neat and tidy and ethical. But you screwed that up the minute you got with a married man. You're not being my friend right now. Oh yes, I am. I am being your friend. This is being your friend. I'm being honest with you. I would say if any of us had a film in common, The Witch is probably our movie of the year. Yeah, um, I think it's like a really good movie to rally around. Obviously, like Moonlight was another one, 10 Cloverfield Lane. But is there anything that we didn't mention in this conversation y'all think deserves well, to be a shout out? Well, I know you talked about Cretia, mm-hmm. which was like probably my number 11 or 12. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I watched that, what, like three days before Thanksgiving? Ooh. And it was the most, <laughs> it was so beautiful. And I do not like Terrence Malick, mm-hmm. but well, he's Terrence Malick's cinematographer. Uh, he's worked on the films before. I don't think he was a cinematographer. He wasn't a cinematographer. Yet, no. He was he just like it. on set for like movies like To the Wonder and okay. Tree of Life. And, but you, uh, you can see that Night style. of Cups. His name is Trey Edward Schultz. He's a okay. very young guy. This is his first feature. Man. He's so good. Just the shots with like the camera spinning around the room. That's the kind of thing that like Malik would do, but bringing it into this very like claustrophobic family situation. And that movie was way weirder and more out there than I thought you it was going to be. You think a film about like family relations and trauma and drug abuse. Usually you think that's a pretty straightforward film. And since it's a straightforward film about a capital I important subject, yeah. it's usually just kind of shot as is. But, but no, this no, was they like... Put weird surreal elements so into it like it I got loved it. so odd I, I think he takes tools he learned from Malik sets and applies them to a narrative we can actually attach onto like mm-hmm. this is a woman returning to the fold to a family that's afraid to accept her after her addiction is sort of estranged her yeah um, and he turns that narrative that's like a really good anchor into this like strange unnerving art piece mm-hmm. with just as uncomfortable like sound design as, as the witch oh yeah no oh, the that... sound the sound for this film made me know it was a horror yeah. film that's yeah. actually like, one just... thing <gasps> I wanted to bring up was like it had the best sound design I think of any movie The Witch is pretty up there as and well. with The Witch too but like the things he did with sound in Cretia was like very unnerving it mm-hmm. made me feel very on edge yeah yeah, I love that movie it's and done really well the other two I was gonna do as an honorable mention even though I think they technically came out last year but I saw them on Netflix this year and it said 2016 was uh, The Invitation oh that was this year that was yeah. this year yeah that was this mm-hmm. year yeah. I really yeah Karen liked- Kusama sort of returning the fold she did a girl fight and jennifer's body and she's been like kind of absent since then 
And I, I think that was really that was well a done. really good thriller. Yeah, um, we were talking about conf- confined space horrors earlier. Like that's another good one in that genre. And again with Creasha. Like well, I think that's that is and well, that's, yeah. and that's is another also, thing too. You know, like I had mentioned, getting this camera and thinking about like what kind of film do I want to make, and like those kind of films are really appealing to me. They're also like, cheap. You know? Yeah, cheap. You, you don't like, have to leave the house. <laughs> a couple of characters in one setting, and you can do so much with that. Like Invitation, Creasha, they all. Invitation show that. made me worry about ever going to California. Because I watched like three movies this year. A uh, holy hell was a documentary. Uh, oh yeah, where California just seems highly susceptible to cults. Cults, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the invitation plays on that fear in like a really cool way. And the, the uh, other movie was this Icelandic movie called Rams. Oh no, no. Oh, um, that one we just got at the library. Actually, we got you, that one for a class. It's um, really, it's really great. Yeah, it's also 2016, but it was hard to get as early as we got it because somebody needed it for a fall semester for a course. Yeah, yeah honestly, that would have been on my top ten, but I didn't included because from what I read online it was technically released 2015 at like cans but they then go by yeah, box office get... mojo yeah uh, so I'm not sure if that actually got Rams, Rams was never released here oh wow I don't yeah really... I I would have put think... that in my top five honestly I mean I think maybe on DVD it was but I don't think it yeah has the right. definitely if you have access to it, check out Rams. What kind of film is it? So it's basically just about two brothers that raise these, you know, sheep. Ram, sheep. <laughs> okay. And then, unfortunately, there's, like, a disease that spreads. Or some kind of plague. They're told by the, like, health commissioner, like, you have to, like, exterminate all your sheep. And they kind of rebel against that. And they were estranged for years, but then they kind of come back together to fight for their sheep. And But it's a stranger film than that, from what I, I gathered. Yeah, I mean, it is a little bit of, like... A slower like art house kind of movie and it takes advantage of the Icelandic landscape there's a lot of just beautiful shots of Iceland according to Box Office Mojo it's technically a 2016 release so that does fall under the criteria. well yeah, I, yeah I should check I, then that, that would definitely be in my yeah. yeah check that out what were your honorable mentions you see well I saw a lot of films this year and some of the films that didn't quite make my top 10 actually one I saw last night uh, and it didn't get a lot of press it was called Maggie's Choice Maggie's Plan oh, oh Maggie's Plan yeah oh man I wrote it down wrong on my list By, Maggie's uh, Plan Rebecca Miller Rebecca Miller who we were reading Wikipedia and me and Brandon are more or less psychic twins so <laughs> we were reading Wikipedia like trying to like figure out who this filmmaker is and then we read out loud oh my god Brandon Cece the director of this film Rebecca Miller she's the daughter of Arthur Miller yeah. like you know Arthur oh, the nice. Arthur Miller and we're like whoa but yeah she's been around for a while she's been making films uh, she's very ambitious she will write a book and then write a screenplay and then direct a screenplay a movie based on the screenplay based on the book that she wrote uh, she's done that in the past um, this film she did not write I don't believe uh, I think she no, directed think so. it she also works closely with Noah Baumbach and his crew of people because she does a, a film fest called the Rushmore Fest where she kind of helped bring a lot of these directors into the fold and helped them develop their careers and this film was kind of this weird idiosyncratic look at this young woman who is trying to control her life and she decides she wants to be a parent without getting into a relationship uh so she sets this plan in motion and things go awry and then later when she tries to correct things go even more awry and it's it's funny because what you think her plan is isn't actually what her plan is from the beginning of the movie which i really i really liked the twist yeah, the, the movie sets itself up to be this sort of typical rom-com plot in the first 10 minutes and I got kind of frustrated with where it was going, and then it completely upended my expectations. Yeah, no, it slid sideways in a really fun way. It's uh, more of like a biting uh, screwball comedy that makes fun of like East Coast academic types. Yeah, no, and it, it's 
it's hilarious. Bill Hader and uh, Maya Rudolph get mad props in this as this like married couple. Yeah. Uh, they have this weird kid who never gets out of his wheelchair, or not his wheelchair, his, his stroller. So the, the point where I think maybe he can't walk, like I can't tell if this character, this child character is disabled, but it just turns out he's always reading and he doesn't want to walk, so his dad just pushes him everywhere in the stroller. <laughs> and he's like nine. Or 10 or older uh, yeah. and he just doesn't feel like it because later he gets up and like yells at everybody and like stomps off I'm just like oh that kid's almost a teenager and they just are being pushed around a stroller because they're weird but no just these weird little surreal moments in this like funny little screwball comedy yeah we watched that one and a monster calls last night and they were both very good 2016 movies yeah yeah, yeah. uh very different though because yeah. I, I laughed a lot during maggie's plan and i cried a lot during monster <laughs> yeah it's two different uh <laughs> divides any other honorable mentions I would also like to shout out The Dressmaker. Uh, that, was, uh, that was mine too, yeah. Uh, and Shin Godzilla. That uh, was another one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Those are so good. Uh, well, I'll, I'll take Godzilla and you can take Dressmaker. Oh, okay, sure. Okay. Um, but no, I just I thought that this year's Shin Godzilla was probably one of the best Godzilla movies I've ever seen, um, which is high praise. I freaking love Godzilla. <laughs> this one's more of a uh, kinetic modern comedy, like a political yeah, satire. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, it's not like just monsters knocking over things. It's like funny and weird and... And parts of it are really slow. It's exceptionally long. And large parts of it are set in this like bureaucratic boardroom trying to get a handle on the disaster that's unfolding. Like, oh, well, we need to have a, a press conference. Okay, so let's have a meeting to have a press conference. Wait, no, we have to first have a meeting to decide who is invited to the press yeah. conference. <laughs> like, and all this kind of stuff. And, and people it, like kind of comically rise to the ranks of the government as the film goes yeah, on. Yeah, no, like people keep getting killed. So like people like <laughs> start off in the mailroom essentially or like... They become like the head of like environmental destruction. <laughs> yeah. You know, film. like like you know, the president dies, so like we or the prime minister dies, so like they have to come up with like new a whole new government essentially. The Japanese government has been dismantled, and they have to like come up with a new government overnight, kind of like Battlestar Galactica or uh, yeah. They never really get into the bureaucracy in yeah, like who, Godzilla. It's who's like the EPA. Where's the EPA or, or Homeland yeah, Security like, or FEMA. you destroyed all these buildings. Where's the like urban planners? Yeah, Are we gonna rebuild movie. these? Like Godzilla uh, does wreak havoc and there is like kaiju violence in this oh, film. Oh, and that's what is why I go is for all of that. Right, stuff. but that's secondary to like the sort of big short government satire that's played here. Yeah. Cool. Which is it's a fun political satire and there is my favorite depiction of Godzilla to date. He has three stages, they're all super cool. There's a bonus one. It's just amazing. He's kind of like Hedera. Best Godzilla. Yeah, it's very much like Hedera, which is my favorite Godzilla. Yeah, me too. Movie, so <laughs> that's probably why this one's kind of up there because it's also a weird political satire about like the current political state of Japan and also the international world and like current foreign relations. Just like Hedera was very much about environmentalism and how we don't know what to do and we're kind of apathetic to it because we don't know how to fix it and we don't want to fix it because it'll like spoil hmm. things for us. Tell so. me about the dressmaker a little bit too. I want, I want to hear you talk about that one. Oh, okay. Should I tell you the tagline of it? Sure. Okay, so the tagline for the dressmaker is that it's it's a western, but instead of guns, it's dresses. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful dresses. I don't like westerns. This I is hate like, westerns. This they're, is like John, John Waters remaking Strictly Ballroom as a western. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's so absurdly campy and like such a feminine like way. literally a 1950s bus rolls into this dusty Australian town, and instead of John Wayne stepping off the bus, it's Kate Winslet, and instead of like a shotgun in her belt, you can see this beautiful heavy 
sewing machine case Mm -hmm. in her hand and she walks literally down the one street road (laughs) of the town with houses on either side and people like going back into their houses when they see her coming you know like the lone like ranger would do like strolling into this town and wrecking havoc and that one is uh, made by the people who made Muriel's Wedding. If you liked Muriel's Wedding, definitely check out The Dressmaker. It's... Yeah, it doesn't have the same weird sense of humor. I don't know about that. I, it's, I mean, well, Abba's not on the soundtrack, so... <laughs> yeah, there's mm-hmm. no Abba on the soundtrack. Because it is the 50s. Boo. But I think it has a fun way of uh, skewing genre expectations. Uh, it sets up these, like, tropes where you expect them to do one thing, and it just makes you laugh. Yeah, it... no, there's a, there's a scene where I did not think they were going to go there. There's a thing that happened, and I was like, no, certainly not. Yeah, not in this film. Not in this film. <laughs> and it happened, yeah. and I was shocked. Yeah. Well, I'm going I'm to try to run through a few quick ones. Um, the Greasy Strangler. Uh, it was basically a disgusting creature feature by way of Tim and Eric about this dad and his son who live alone together, cover themselves with grease, and one of them is a murderer. Uh, it's not a murder mystery. He announces that he's the greasy strangler in the first scene. Uh, <laughs> and it sort of satirizes indie aughts rom-com movies like Napoleon Dynamite and Juno and stuff like that. It has that cutesy twee look to it but makes it such a perversely gross film. Just the nastiest horror movie I saw all year, including Clown, which I called out earlier. But yeah, if you like Tim and Eric and you like nasty creature features, definitely check out The Greasy Strangler. The Mermaid was the newest film from Steve, Stephen Chow, who did Kung Fu Hustle in the early 2000s. Um, another madcap, like, Zazz-style spoof of different genres. Sort of rom-coms, a little bit of 60s uh, spy movies. And environmentalist drama, where you see overfishing in Chinese waters turn into this nasty, horrific horror show where you watch all these mermaids get speared to death by these people after you've learned to love their community. So it's kind of an interesting uh, comedy where you get sort of lulled in this like false sense of security with uh, how zany and goofy the movie is. And then there's this brutal violence where all these mermaids you've fallen in love with get murdered. <laughs> and you sort of like grow to learn how horrific overfishing is through that way which is a really interesting thing i don't think i've seen any other movie do this year well you know if, if putting a, a face on fish you know is supposed <laughs> to help with overfishing but it's not how about we put a human face on them yeah how about a fish you want to fuck <laughs> how does that help <laughs> uh and then another irreverent comedy uh just because i like these so much uh swiss army man where harry potter plays a farting corpse with a magical boner and it turns into a sort of queer romance in its own weird way. Even though I, I couldn't quite put the movie in my top ten because it doesn't follow through on some of the queer subtext that it teases in its film. It wasn't quite as thorough and brave in that as I would have wanted. It also wasn't like brave enough to keep on doing the surreal stuff. Even if it like didn't keep the queer subtext, it just didn't keep up the surreal. At some point, they go crashing back, and I didn't want to come back. Right. I had already invested so much in this world, I didn't want to be in the other. But as a long-form prank, uh, it is a passionately done film that takes its ridiculous joke premise to an extreme that I think most movies would have been more um, dismissive of. This one actually invests some emotional weight to the ridiculous thing it's set up, and I I really do think Swiss Army Man's fun and worth watching, uh, even if it's not quite the resounding success. And that's another debut feature from these two guys, Daniels, who... I sort of cut their teeth on music videos. This is another like young filmmaker yeah. adventure that I think is worth championing. For a film based on a singular image, and the singular image was a person riding a jet ski, but instead of a jet ski, it's a dead body. Farting itself. Farting itself <laughs> through the waves. Yeah, yeah. Like that was, they were like, that's what we want. We want somebody riding a 
farting corpse through the water like it's a jet ski. <laughs> and they just like started with that and built a movie around that. Like usually you can't start with a premise as singular as that and build anything with emotional weight or, you know, a narrative plot. And they somehow managed it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, mad props to the Daniels for, for really coming up with something. Well, that's about 45, 50, maybe 75 movies that you have not watched, maybe. Uh, <laughs> uh, like 100. Hopefully you found covered some. covered a lot of ground. I yeah. Feel like. This podcast will be changing formats again. James and Cece are going to start alternating between co-hosting duties. New year, new era of the podcast. I'm, I'm glad that we got a year out of consistent recordings under our belt. It feels good. Woo! Uh, <laughs> and uh, we hope to hear back from you all soon. Bye. 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 Thank you.